Thanks for listening to this week's sermon from Epicos Church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. For more information about Epicos, please visit epicos.org. Hey, welcome. My name is Dave. I'm one of your pastors. And uh, we're in John chapter 18 today. I'm excited about what God has for us. And uh, we're going to focus in together to hear from God and hear what his, how his word can transform us. John chapter 18, a Bible that you brought with you, encourage you to do that. A Bible in front of you uh, or a Bible on your smartphone. And we're just going to trust that you're not leveling up. So uh, <laughs> I want to tell you about the emperor of the United States. Some of you are wondering, I thought we had a president. What do you mean the emperor in the 1800s? A guy named uh, Norton, okay? Emperor Norton I declared himself emperor. The guy, the guy was actually born Joshua Norton, and uh, he was a semi-successful and then failed business person in San Francisco in the 1800s, and he's sitting around in a bar one day, because all great ideas come when you're sitting around in a bar, right? And uh, he's sitting around in the bar one day and tells his friends... I am now officially the emperor of the United States. He just declares it. Starts making proclamations. Something happened with Mexico. He declared himself the protector of Mexico. Good-hearted guy. And, uh, and he, he went around. He, he wore this old army. I think we have some pictures. He wore this old army uniform. And he just declared himself the, the emperor of the United States. He even issued currency. Right? Now, this is reproduction because, ironically, if you had the original, they'd probably be worth a lot of money. And uh, so he, I mean, what a good gig, right? He's the emperor. He can print his own money. He's, you know, he's paying his bills with his own currency. Like, that's pretty sweet. Um, You can even go to San Francisco today and take a walking tour of where Emperor Norton kind of had his domain and his region So with Emperor Norton in mind, let me ask this question. Where does kingship or emperorship come from? Where does kingship come from? Because it's actually the central question of the passage that we're looking at today. We're going to pick it up in John 18, verse 28. Jesus is taken before the the high priest, the leaders of the Jews. There's a trial. Peter denies him again. And then we'll pick it up. Now, for background, we've been working our way through the book, book of John. We've seen the public ministry of Jesus come to an end. The intimate teaching where Jesus teaches just his disciples in chapters 13, 14, 15, 16 is over. The Passover meal or the pre-Passover meal has been cleaned up. The long high priestly prayer has been prayed. Judas has betrayed him with a kiss. Peter has denied him. But his torture and murderous execution have not yet begun. It all hangs in the balance, specifically here in this trial before Pontius Pilate. John 18, verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. So this has gone on all night long. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So they were concerned about their ritual food laws, right, the the leaders here. So they wanted to celebrate the holiday so they couldn't go in to Pilate's residence so they stayed outside. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? 
They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. So there's some verbal jousting going on between the Jews, you know, who are being occupied by Rome. Pontius Pilate is the governor, the Roman governor, the the authority of Rome in the city and in the region. And they're kind of going back and forth saying, hey, we, we don't have to report to you, just do what we say. And he's asking what the accusation is. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And and there's the key of it. They want Jesus crucified. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. If you're a note taker, as we work our way through, I'm going to make some observations. And the first one is, and they're all about his kingdom, because that's what Jesus is going to be talking about. His kingdom is not of or from this world. It's not of or from this world. And we're going to unpack what that means, but listen for those two variations as Jesus responds here in his trial with Pilate. Verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, so they're outside, now they're inside. Eventually Pilate will go back outside. Jesus, or Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And this ostensibly is the question, kind of right in in part of these trials, is Jesus the king of the Jews? Is he the Messiah? And the Jewish leaders are saying, absolutely not. You're committing blasphemy. They've they've tried him. They've found him guilty. They've rejected him. And now Pilate is kind of in a mocking way. It's almost the emphasis on you. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? I just want you to notice that Jesus is never intimidated. He's not backing down to Pilate. In fact, he does a verbal jousting of his own. And he's asking Pilate a valid question. Are you just a puppet? Are you just going to do the bidding of the Jewish leaders who just dropped me off and you're just going to kind of see this thing through? Or are you asking questions for yourself? Pilate's disgusted. He answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered. He doesn't answer that question. He answers the first question about his kingship. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. My, but my kingdom is not from the world. And then the conversation continues, but we're going to stop there. His kingdom is not of or from the world. He uses both of those formulations. Now, we don't have time to kind of do a full teaching on the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Uh, three or four years ago, we went through the book of Matthew, uh, and one of the central themes of the book of Matthew is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Um, but as we look at that and think about the kingdom of God today, we're going to talk about, you know, what is the source of the kingdom that Jesus is talking about. And by the way, the word can be kingdom or kingship. It's translated here kingdom, but it could mean either and or both or kind of varying degrees. So what is the source of Jesus's kingship and kingdom? Where is the activity of the kingdom, right? And what is the mission of the kingdom? Jesus is making clear that the source of the kingdom that he is the king of is not of or from this world. Now, this is important because it's striking right at the heart of where does earthly power come from? Where do earthly kingdoms get their power? Well, they get it from military force, right? 
You know, whoever has the biggest army, that's the one who rules. In fact, they have a whole way of working that out. They're called wars, right? You know, um, this is, this is if, if you have control of the army and you go through a military coup, whoever the biggest general is and controls the army, that, that person is in charge. We see this throughout history. This is the way of earthly kingdoms. Whoever has the, the military power. Jesus is specifically rejecting this as the source of, and the legitimacy and the authority of his kingdom. In the garden, when Peter, he pulls out his sword, and he's thinking, okay, this is the time, right? Here's it, it's coming to swords, and, and he starts to battle, and Jesus tells him, no, that's not what we're doing. He specifically here says to Pilate, if my kingdom had its authority in this world, then I would have an army. I would be conducting military operations just like other kings and kingdoms do. He's saying, That's not the source. The other source of an earthly kingdom would be the will of the people. And we would experience that like in in democracy or or whatever today. But even in the ancient times, a a king could either be considered a tyrant, right? Or a noble, noble monarch, right? And the difference was the character of the person ruling, but also his intent and his will towards ruling the people. And so implied is the will of the people, the popularity of a ruler is part of the power of right, of that ruler. And we know that that's not the source of Jesus' power because at the end of our passage, the crowds reject him. They say, give us Barabbas. So Jesus is making clear, my kingdom, even though I'm on trial, right, he's he's standing there as king. And he says, the source of my kingdom is not like the source of the kingdoms of this world. It is not from or of this world. Now, there is the activity of the kingdom, which is in this world, and this is important. We're going to look at this fully in just a minute, but verse 37, then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. So again, it's back to this formulation that Jesus has used. He's coming into the world. The world is rejecting him, opposing him, right? I came into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And that word listens means listens and does, obeys. So the activity of the kingdom is not not of this world. It is entering into, and notice the activity is that the kingdom then bears witness to the truth. And that truth brings about such a transformation in certain people that they now hear and obey the voice of Jesus. And isn't that the kingdom of God? You know, John puts this in a different way. The purpose of his book that he's writing is that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And by believing, you would have life in his name. And Jesus is saying, this kingdom, this truth that I'm, I'm bearing witness to is transformative and it changes people so they hear and obey my voice, right? Part of discipleship is surrendering to God, right? And then abiding in the teachings of Jesus. He's just sharing this with Pilate in a very condensed way. And of course, that's the mission of the kingdom. His kingdom and his kingship is ultimately tied to his mission, which is revealing this truth and seeing that people would follow him and be obedient to him, the the true king. His kingdom is not of or from the world. The reason why the activity of the kingdom being present in our world is important 
is because it, it prevents the kingdom of God from becoming, um, I think it was called kingdoms or a heaven's gate cult, right? Do you remember that? The Hale-Bopp comment was coming through and there's a group of people waiting for the mothership to beam them up. Do you know what I'm talking about? It was a while ago, but it was like this whole thing and they're like, this, this comet is like this alien spaceship and they're, the, the mothership's going to come and they're going to beam us up and we all got to get ready, okay? And that sounds ridiculous, but sometimes if we don't fully understand the kingdom, that's what we think is going to happen. We know that there is a point where the kingdom of God is fully revealed. We know that there is a point where God will, Jesus will return and set all things right. And so we're just going to wait and twiddle our thumbs until that happens. And actually, First and Second Thessalonians make clear that that's not what God is calling us to do. The activity of the kingdom of God is present in this world because if the kingdom is not of this world and the activity is not in this world and the mission is not in this world, then we're just waiting for the mothership. But it's not. The source and power of his kingdom is not of this world because he is the pre-existent son of God. The king of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of heaven and earth. He has incarnated, is walking among us, And he is declaring and proclaiming this kingdom and the activity of the kingdom is happening in the world in which you and I are in this this moment. His kingdom is not of or from the world. Second, his kingdom reveals truth. That's what he's saying in this passage. His kingdom is not of or from the world. His kingdom reveals truth. Pick it up in verse 37. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. That's one of the themes of John, right? John the Baptist was a witness. People are witnessing about Jesus. This is a trial. There was another trial. It's all about witnessing, right? A trial gets to the truth. To bear witness to the truth, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And then Pilate said to him, what is truth? What is truth? And we get right to the core of the matter very quickly. And I think it's easy to take Pilate's question as a dismissive or derogatory way of talking to Jesus. And that that might be what it is. But I think in Pilate's response... I hear what is common even today, which is a weariness over discerning and determining what is truth. Because that's what Jesus is proclaiming. He's proclaiming that his kingdom flows from truth, and kingdom does flow from truth. And then Pilate just kind of holds up his arms and is like, what is truth? And if you've ever been part of a late night philosophical discussion, and it gets all convoluted and twisted around, and you just go, what is truth, right? And then you go to bed. Because I think sometimes we, we get so far down this road and then we just kind of want to give up. And there's actually a whole study of how you and I determine our source of truth. Because each and every one of us have a truth source, whether we have consciously made the decision of our source of truth or not. The study of that is called epistemology. Some of you are just going, oh no. You know, I didn't even want to think about truth. You're like Pilate. And now I don't even want to hear the word that describes just the study of truth. Because we kind of like to avoid it. But but here is what people who study our truth source say. There's there's different truth sources that we could choose. One is rationalism. Logic and reason. Your rational thinking. 
if it's logical, it's true, right? We know people like this. If it makes sense and you can logic it out and, you know, all that sort of stuff. A second truth source could be empiricism, which is rationalism plus data from sensory input. To make this a little bit more manageable, this is your rational, your rational thought has a hypothesis and then you test it and it's repeatable, right? Scientific method, okay? Rationalism, empiricism. Then there's also pragmatism. Who cares if it doesn't work? What works is true. Results are the proof of what is true. What, what works is true. We all know pragmatists, right? Authority is another source of truth, an expert. And then ultimately, revelation from God. And this isn't just Christian thinkers, this is just in general. So, of course, different religious systems have their written source of truth, right? Their, their version of it. And as followers of Christ, we believe that this is the revealed written word of God and it's our truth source. To simplify where you, what your true source is, it can be someone else, a written scripture, or yourself. Think about someone else. The very first truth source that you had was who? Mom or dad, right? That's the whole world you know. You know, and there comes a point where it's just like, you know, why? And mom or dad just says, because I said so, right? Parents, if that's the age that your kid is at, that only lasts for so long, you know? Eventually, the world expands, and we, we take on, I think, the culture around us of our upbringing as our truth source, right? What, is the, what are the norms? What are the rights and wrongs? What is the, the standards of behavior of our general culture in which we find ourselves? That becomes our source of truth. Or you could currently have a source of, of truth that is someone or, or more likely a group of people. You know, maybe for you, it's what the Republicans or the Democrats say, right? This group of people and the, and the party line defines for me what is truth and what is right. And that's, I, I filter what I receive through that lens and I filter what I share through that lens, right? It could be a group of people or a, or a person. Then there's also written scripture, Right? So we could say, hey, this is the, the Bible is my truth source as a follower of Jesus, right? That this is the teaching of Jesus and the apostles that came after, and, and this is the, 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 the sharing of the faith, and okay. Here's a test for those of us who are, we claim to be followers of Christ, of whether the Bible is the authority in your life. Picture for a minute grading a test. Educators, teachers, I'm sorry. I know, you're off work and I'm talking about grading tests. Just hang with me for a minute, okay? So here's our work. Here's the test that we've taken and here's the word of God. If the word of God is the authority, it is the answer key that grades and evaluates and by which our work is corrected, right? This is the answer key. If my answers don't line up, I correct my answers. I correct my life. I correct my thinking by the word of God. But more often, our answers actually are in authority over the word of God. And when we read the Bible, we read it with this is the answer key. And we say, oh, I really like that part. Mm, that's good stuff. This one? Nah, not so much. I like this. Nah, I'm going to skip this part. I'm going to skip this whole book, actually. And so if this is the process in your life, 
the answer or your source of truth then de facto is me, right? You. And this is actually the most common source of truth because we then become the arbiters, the deciders of what is true for me, right? Because what's true for me doesn't have to be true for you. We can all be, right, in charge of our own truth. Now, I just want to on the surface say, as one individual in like billions of people in all of human history to say you are the arbiter of truth is a little bit arrogant. I just, I want to go on record. But we do. Why? Because kingdom flows from truth. And we want to be king. Kingdom flows from truth. And you and I want to establish our own kingdom. And do life our own way. According to our own standard. And our own opinions. And what we want. And we are very much like Emperor Norton, declaring our own kingdom. Kingdom flows from truth. Now, just to belabor the point, I don't think that this is wise, and it reminds me of deer hunting. Hang with me just for a minute. I I didn't grow up deer hunting, but my father-in-law was a deer hunter, so when I got married, I was a deer hunter, right? And so I really didn't know my way around the woods necessarily. I didn't, I didn't grow up with a, you know, in a deer hunting or woods culture or whatever. So the first time we're going out, we go into the national forest, big forest, right? And my father-in-law gives me a compass that pins on my jacket and says, you know, kind of gives me a brief, you know, find tree north. And I kind of had a good idea of where tree north was. And my deer stand was only like 100 yards in the woods because I'm pretty sure he didn't want me to get lost, right? And so I'm not really going to get lost. It's like right, you know, it's right down this big trail. If I get lost, there's a, there's a bigger problem going on. But I'm observing my compass and I realize my compass isn't working. It's not showing true north, right? So when we come back for lunch, I say to my father-in-law, I don't think my compass is working. And he goes, I can fix that for you. I hand it to him. He chucks it in the woods. Because what do you do with a compass that isn't working? You chuck it. But yet we don't. And I know for a fact that you, as truth source, hasn't worked for you. There have been mistakes. There have been ways where you, being the arbiter of truth in your life, has led you down paths that have been disastrous and terrible. And clearly your compass is not pointing to true north. But we don't take the logical step to get rid of the compass. We keep letting it guide us. Why? Because we want to be king. Kingdom flows from truth. His kingdom is not of or from this world. His kingdom reveals truth. And then continuing on that thought, his kingdom is rejected by the world. His kingdom is rejected by the world. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After this, after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no fault in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man to you at the Passover. Pilate, is, he doesn't want to riot. He, he's trying to be politically expedient. 
He's trying to figure out a way out of this. So, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? He's assuming the answer is yes. The crowd, not just the Jewish leaders, the crowd, they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber, another criminal, and Jesus is rejected. Part of what John is trying to paint in this passage is that the religious leaders have rejected Jesus. His disciples, Judas has betrayed him. Peter has denied him. What it says right before our passage say, Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You also are not one of the disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off. This guy was paying attention, right? Someone swinging a sword at your relative cuts off his ear. Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once a rooster crowed. Judas has betrayed him. Peter has denied him. The crowds, the people have rejected him. They're calling for Barabbas. And ultimately, not yet, but, but Pilate will convict him. And Rome, kind of representing the government of the world, rejects Jesus. But this is the case of God's people all throughout history. From the very beginning, we have been in the business of rejecting God's reign and rule in our life. In the garden, Adam and Eve, at the very beginning, they reject the reign and rule of God, and they choose a different truth source. Why? So they can do their own people of God are being led directly by God. They don't have an earthly king. They, God himself is, is caring for them and leading them. And they reject that and they say, we want an earthly king. And so he gives it to them. The kingdom goes through issues. It's divided north and south. There's good kings and bad kings. And all along the way, they're rejecting the reign and rule of God and they reject God himself. And they turn to other gods that are no gods. And ultimately, both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom are carried away into exile. And here at this moment, this moment in John represents the entire world rejecting Jesus. The Jewish leaders have already tried and handed him over. Judas has rejected and betrayed him. Peter has rejected and denied him. John even told us in the opening hymn, the prologue, that this was going to happen. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. And so do we. So do we. In little ways and big ways, we reject the reign and the rule of God in our lives. This is part of the curse of sin. That we are not aligned with his will, we're aligned with our own will. We want to do things our way. We want to declare ourselves king. We, We want to go down this road. And we reject him. But, But the great truth of Scripture, the good news of the gospel, is that despite our rejection of God, he still invites us to return and makes a way for us to be reconnected with him. This is the very thing that Jesus is in the middle of doing, of laying down his life, of being a sacrifice for each and every one of us. 
this is not unique to this moment in history. This has been God's heart all the way along. The book of Isaiah begins kind of enumerating all the ways that the people of God have been rejecting and rebelling against the Lord. And then in verse 18, Come, now let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Jeremiah, beginning of the book of Jeremiah, similar thing, recounting all the ways that God's people have rebelled against him. Jeremiah chapter 3, return faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt, that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree, and that you have not obeyed my voice. The very thing Jesus was just talking about. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master, your king, your ruler. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. God's heart is not to leave us in our rebellion and our sin and and leave us be cursed. It's to redeem us. It's to offer this great trade of the gospel that's summarized in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Pilate's just declared that. I find no guilt in him. He's lived a sinless life. He is not sin, but he made him sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the exchange of the gospel. That what we have is rebellion and sin and failure and our own failed kingdoms. And God says, just return. And I will take all of your sin and in exchange I will give you forgiveness and freedom in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's the worst deal ever for God. But for us, it's the gospel. It's the truth. It's the revelation of his heart for us. He says, come, let us reason together. Let us return. Here, here's the problem with this idea. Is it, 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 the best word to describe it is called repentance, right? But repentance is one of those words that makes us think of the guy with the sandwich board and the bullhorn. Repent for the kingdom of God. is You know, and we don't think about it. It's, it's maybe a too churchy of a word, but repent just means to turn. To turn from our kingdom to his kingdom. The other problem is that sometimes we think of this word repentance as being like, well, this is the one moment like, where I turn my life over to Christ for the first time. And, and maybe some of you are considering that and, and you're kind of standoffish with God and, and we'd, let, we'd be glad to journey with you in that journey. But for most of us, we think about, okay, that was like a one-time thing. Or maybe repentance is only when I do something really, really bad, right? And then I have to repent. And it's better that we would think about living a life of repentance, living in repentance. That, that throughout the course of walking with God, we, God is going to bring to our mind and illuminate with the light of Christ all sorts of different ways where, where not just our actions, but our motives, our thoughts, our attitudes, all these small things we're We're living in the curse of sin and we don't live in perfect submission and surrender to God. And we're constantly returning. We're constantly trying to build our own kingdom and then constantly returning. We're living in repentance. We're living in returning to the Lord. I also just want to speak directly to those of you who are afraid that you've done too much sinning, that God can't forgive you. And that's a lie of the enemy. 
no matter what you've done, no matter what's happened, God wants to take whatever is in your life and exchange it for his righteousness and his beauty and redeem and restore and bring you to wholeness. His kingdom is rejected by the world, but there's always the opportunity for us to accept his kingdom and his reign and his rule, even today. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Don't leave. If, that, if you haven't made that decision, don't leave here today without talking to somebody. But maybe it's just a matter of, of learning how we live in repentance. His kingdom is not of or from this world. His kingdom reveals truth and kingdom flows from truth. And his kingdom is rejected. Right? I don't think I should have to show you this, but just so we're clear, this is where Emperor Norton's empire ends. Right? He's dead. He's done. He's in the grave. It's over. George Washington is in the grave. Every king, every ruler, every human authority is going to come to an end. Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords because the tomb is empty and his kingdom, his kingship has no end. And he invites us to be part of his reign and his rule. Let's surrender. Let's have our ears open to his truth and live in obedience to King Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I pray and thank you for your goodness and your heart of love and compassion for us. Lord, I pray that you would assure us of your forgiveness, that you would, especially those who are afraid to return, that you would assure them of your love and, and, and that if we just acknowledge that we've rebelled against you, you make our, our sins white as snow. God, I pray that you would let us live in repentance, that we would live lives of repentance, lives that honor you, lives that are constantly returning, that we're turning from our own kingdoms and we're turning to you. King Jesus, reign and rule in our lives. Have your way. Have your way in our lives. Have your way in our hearts. Have your way in our minds. Have your way in our attitudes and our thoughts and our motives in all things. God, we want to glorify you. We thank you for this great exchange of the gospel that you've taken our junk, our sin, and you've given us your righteousness. We praise you and thank you in the name and power of Jesus Christ.